evidence and answers. For years, skeptics have been saying that the Gospels were not actually written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But what do they base their claims on? What is true? Christians want to know. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will be concluding a teaching that dispels what critics are saying about the Gospels. Here with part three of a three-part message is our host, Pat Zucran. We have been going through our series on the critics and the Gospels. And in this series, I've been addressing some of the toughest modern-day criticisms raised by scholars, pastors, and former pastors. Many of these critics once held to the inspiration of Scripture and the deity of Christ. But after much study, they became disillusioned by the alleged errors in the New Testament, and many left the ministry or remain in ministry but skeptical about the message of the New Testament. Many of these men and women have written best-selling books and have very popular websites that present some of the most formidable arguments against Christianity. In this series, I've addressed some of the most serious challenges raised by these men and women, and you can listen to the entire series on our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Well, this is the third part, and I'm going to address some more of these very challenging questions. The first one we'll address today is the allegation that some of the books of the Bible of the New Testament are forgeries. Here, the critics allege that some of the books of the Bible, notably some of the letters attributed to Paul, are believed to have been written by people who, quote, lied about who they were to gain Paul's authority for promoting their own ideas. However, these writers never stated this to be the case. Instead, they used pseudopigrapha, a fancy word meaning wrongly attributed authorship that tells the truth but disguises its true source. Critics like to point to the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Since the writers here use Paul's names, it was concluded by the early church that these letters must be authentic. However, critics allege that there is wide agreement among many Bible scholars that they differ so much from Paul's vocabulary, style, and teaching that they could not be written by Paul. All this raises the question of how much authority then one wishes to give to the writings of those who are not truthful, even about who they were as authors. For instance, many critics point out the contrast to the respect that Paul showed toward women. However, the author of 1 Timothy felt very differently. In 1 Timothy 2, 11-15, Paul says that women need to be silent and submissive and will be saved only through childbearing. A similar point that women need to be silent in church appears in an authentic letter of Paul as written in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. However, it is alleged that those verses so thoroughly break the flow of the passage in which they appear and are so contrary to other things Paul writes that they seem like they're a later insertion by another person wanting to claim the authority of Paul for his own repressive attitude towards women. Therefore, it is concluded that those verses in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians were written apparently by people pretending to be someone they were not. And these verses today are used to limit the leadership role of women in many churches. Well, were these letters written by Paul or are they indeed forgeries written by an unknown author claiming to be Paul? 
Well, until modern times, there was little question as to the authorship of the pastoral epistles. Scholars were overwhelmingly agreed that these letters were indeed authentic and written by Paul. Now, the liberal scholarship of the 19th century attacked the Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles, and many of their arguments are still held by the majority of liberal scholars, as the argument I just presented. Liberal scholars believe it was not Paul but a writer claiming to be Paul, and there are four arguments against Pauline authorship. The arguments are historical, stylistic, ecclesiastical, and theological. Let's take a look at those four particular arguments and see if they build a strong case against Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles. Now, the historical arguments point out that the chronological references in the pastoral epistles do not seem to align with the chronology in the book of Acts. For this reason, liberal scholars conclude that these epistles are written after Paul's life by someone claiming to be Paul. Now, there are reasonable explanations for the chronology here. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. Now, it's very possible that Paul was released and traveled widely until he was recaptured and then martyred three to five years later after his release. It is during his release that Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, and he eventually wrote 2 Timothy during his final imprisonment before his death. This would explain why the chronology of the pastoral epistles do not fit nicely with the book of Acts. And that's a very plausible argument here. Now, when it comes to the stylistic argument, the stylistic argument states that the vocabulary used in the pastoral letters is not characteristic of Paul's prior letters. Therefore, it's concluded that the writing style and the vocabulary point to another author other than Paul. Well, there are several reasonable explanations for this. The difference in vocabulary and style can be due to the different subjects Paul is addressing, the different purposes of his writings, the various audiences he is addressing, the different environments in which he is writing in, and Paul's aging and maturing and development as a writer. I know that my writing in my early 20s differs a lot from my writings now as I have matured as a person, as a disciple of Christ, and in the things that I have learned and in the different kind of audiences I am now addressing. And this could certainly explain the difference in vocabulary and style with Paul. Also, it is possible that Paul could have also used a secretary. We know that Paul traveled with several men, Luke, Timothy, Silas, just to name a few. And it could be that they also wrote in as Paul's secretary as well. So there are many reasonable explanations for the stylistic differences here. The ecclesiastical arguments state that the church structure and order Paul is addressing did not develop until the second century as the church matured. However, in Paul's earlier letters, he addresses the offices of elder and deacon in the churches. They are already well established in the churches. So the church structure he writes of in the pastoral epistles have developed. We also see him addressing elders in his other letters, such as Philippians chapter 1. And Philippians is a book that really no one argues about that Paul did indeed write. Also, 
In the early second century, there developed a hierarchical distinction between the bishop and the office of the elder. There was a hierarchy that developed there that the bishop was seen as higher over the elder. However, in Paul's letters, this distinction is absent. He uses the Greek terms for bishop and elder interchangeably, as he does in chapter 1 of Titus. And so Paul doesn't see that distinction there, which developed in the second century. Since that distinction is absent, it's most likely this letter was written very early, and you could build a good case written in the lifetime of Paul. Then we have the theological arguments, and they are the following. Critics state that the heresy Paul was battling in the epistles, in the pastoral epistles, is the heresy of Gnosticism, which threatened the church in the second century, and the theology of the epistles represent that of a second century Christian. Well, Gnosticism did become a heretical movement, but it became a strong heretical movement that threatened the church in the second century. However, it was already a threat in Paul's times. In his letter to the Colossians, he is dealing with early Gnostic teaching. The heresies Paul is addressing in the pastoral epistles do not seem to be well-developed kind of Gnosticism of the second century. They appear to be a mix of Gnostic dualism and Jewish traditions, which would be expected in Paul's times. So in regards to theology, critics argue that Paul's favorite theological themes are missing in the pastorals, such as the ministry of the Holy Spirit, grace, the believer's position in Christ, and others. However, these themes do occur in these letters. The unique style and theological emphasis can be attributed to the issues he was addressing with Timothy and Titus, the audience and his purpose. Therefore, we can expect them to differ from some of the other letters. Now, although these letters are different in flavor, there's no need to reject Pauline authorship. Here's the next criticism leveled against the Gospels. This critic writes, The apostles who had been taught by Jesus himself insisted that Paul was wrong about the gospel. Let me read to you this critic's challenge here. He alleges that the apostle Paul was attacked for his gospel message, which the apostles believed to be incorrect. This critic alleges that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he complains about those who thought that his gospel was wrong and were causing people to turn away from what he had taught them. Not wanting to give voice to the opposition, he doesn't mention the issue in dispute. But he was not one to even consider that he may have been at fault. Saying in that same Galatians passage that even any angel from heaven who dared to disagree with him should be condemned. This critic then alleges that Paul refers to his opponents in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, where he calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. In verse 5, he sarcastically calls them, quote, super apostles. So this critic concludes that in that time, super apostles could have meant only one thing, the original apostles of Jesus Christ. So this critic concludes that the apostles who had known, walked with, and been taught by Jesus himself during his lifetime thought Paul was wrong about at least some of what he was teaching. The critic concludes that since Paul's teaching became a basis of today's Christian faith, Jesus would not have approved 
of the religion that is today proclaimed in his name. Well, was Paul teaching the wrong gospel? Were the apostles in opposition to his teachings? In Galatians, Paul saw that the gospel of grace was under attack, and Paul does indeed describe who the false teachers are. They were the Judaizers, those who taught obedience to the Jewish law is required for salvation. And one of the requirements addressed was circumcision in chapter 5. Paul mentions that. Paul stated that if this is required, then one must keep the entire Old Testament law to be saved. These teachers were teaching a gospel message then of faith and works and discrediting Paul's authority. Now, this is the context of the book of Galatians and the reason Paul wrote to defend the gospel of grace and his apostleship. Now, this critic makes a huge leap concluding that these false teachers are named by Paul in 2 Corinthians. He alleges that they are the super apostles Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 11.5. He then concludes these super apostles are the original 12 apostles of Christ. Paul identifies the false teachers as super apostles because they attempted to associate themselves with the original apostles. These men claim to be superior to Paul because of their oratory skills, letters of recommendation, and alleged miracles they performed. So Paul opens the chapter stating, I wish you bear with me in a little foolishness. Paul, in playing the fool, applies the term super apostles here to these false apostles in an ironic way. He wasn't referring to the twelve. Although these claimed superiority to Paul, they were not true apostles. And it's highly unlikely Paul was referring to the twelve original apostles. First, if they were one of the twelve, why would they need letters of recommendation? People would have recognized that they were one of the twelve. These opponents also laid great stress upon oratorial skills, not something which was representative of the old Jerusalem hierarchy, as we see in Acts chapter 4. Nor was this a mark of the Judaizers who represented them. In addition, the false apostles at Corinth stressed the importance of visionary experiences and revelations, displays of power to prove that Christ spoke through them and the so-called apostolic signs. As far as Paul was concerned, these men were not true apostles of Christ at all. Now, in the case of Paul's opponents mentioned in the book of Galatians, the false teachers were Judaizers. This was a name used to describe Christian Jews who sought to impose upon Gentile converts the obligations of the law and make them submit to things like circumcision. This became a gospel of faith and works, a message Paul strongly opposed. However, there are no indications in 2 Corinthians that Paul's opponents in Corinth were trying to impose these same things. Finally, in the general epistles, the apostles are consistent with Paul's theology. And in fact, Peter, in his second letter, commends and defends the apostle Paul. He states in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other 
scriptures. Here, Peter defends Paul's authority and Paul's teaching and even equates Paul's letters to inspired scripture. He calls Paul's letters scriptures, equating them to the inspired scriptures of God. So to state that the apostles disagreed with Paul's theology would be an incorrect conclusion. Another popular challenge is this. The teachings of Christ were passed down orally and became distorted when it was written down decades later. Well, how accurate was the oral tradition? Were the apostles able to accurately recall and teach the message of Christ and the events of his life? Critics allege that the oral tradition was embellished over time, leading to the miracle stories of Christ and the teaching that he was indeed the divine Son of God. Well, you must understand first, the recollections of the apostles were not individual memories, but collective ones confirmed by other eyewitnesses and burned into their minds by the constant retelling of the story. Therefore, both the repetition of the stories about Jesus and the verification of such by other eyewitnesses served as checks and balances on the apostles' accuracy. So memory in community is a death blow to the view that the disciples simply forgot the real Jesus or embellished the events. Second, the disciples of Jesus were eyewitnesses and they surely discussed the miracles and teachings of Jesus as a group of loyal followers. The disciples as a community then repeated and memorized the events and teachings of Jesus together, holding one another accountable for accuracy of Christ's teachings and a record of the events of the life of Christ. Another fallacy in the argument is that it is a huge leap to conclude the faulty memory of the disciples eventually led to a doctrine like the deity of Christ. There is the possibility of mistaking details, but key teachings like the very nature of Christ would not be forgotten. For example, some people may forget where they were when John F. Kennedy was shot, but the fact that he was the President of the United States and that he was assassinated is not a fact many witnesses would forget or get wrong. Major events like the trial, death, and resurrection of Christ would not have been easily distorted or forgotten. There were also eyewitnesses, both opponents and followers of Christ, who could verify the facts of the apostles as true or false. Remember that the apostles were preaching in a very hostile arena. The men who crucified Christ were still alive and in power when the apostles began preaching their message. The opposition, remember, was looking for any reason to discredit the message of the apostles. If there were facts that were distorted or any embellished stories, the opponents would have pointed it out in order to discredit the authority of the apostles, and the gospel message would not have lasted. Remember, in the Jewish culture, it was a well-established practice for disciples to memorize the teachings of their master. In our world today, with modern computers, our memory capability is diminished. But in oral cultures, even today, before the printing press, memory was at a very high level. And many of Christ's teachings were spoken in ways that could easily be memorized using mnemonic devices such as poetic rhymes and cadences. And finally, the apostles would have repeated the events and teachings of Jesus hundreds of times together in a community before they were written down in the Gospels. 
This repetition by the disciples as a community would provide accountability and accuracy of the teachings of Jesus. Therefore, we can reasonably conclude that the oral tradition that was carried on by the apostles was very accurate until the time it was written down in the four Gospels. The final challenge we'll address today is one I hear often of the Bethlehem slaughter. In Matthew chapter 2, it states that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod, and upon hearing that a king had been born, the frightened Herod ordered all children under the age of two to be killed. Critics argue that there's no record outside the Bible of Herod's slaughter of the children in Matthew chapter 2. Well, how do we account that there's no outside record of this mass slaughter of children? Some critics say hundreds of children, they're slaughtered in Bethlehem. Why is there no record outside the New Testament of such an event? Well, remember, Bethlehem at this time is not a major city, but a small town of about four to 500 people. So in a village that size, the number of children was probably a few, not in the hundreds as some critics allege. Therefore, news of the slaughter of perhaps a dozen children or so by Herod in a remote village would have taken time to spread and historians had bigger news to cover. Now, Herod's slaughter of the innocents is consistent with the historical facts that describe his character. Herod was paranoid and suspicious of anyone whom he thought would threaten his throne. Jewish historian Josephus records a list of Herod's victims. His list included one of his ten wives, who was his favorite, three of his own sons, a high priest, an ex-king, and two of his sister's husbands. Therefore, his brutality portrayed in Matthew is consistent with his description in ancient history. With such a record, the news of the arrival of a king, it is reasonable that a person with Herod's paranoia would not hesitate to murder a few infants in a small village in order to eliminate a suspected rival. So there are good reasons why this event is not mentioned outside the New Testament text. But from the historical evidence that we have, you could build a reasonable case because it is consistent with Herod's character. And remember, there are hundreds of archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical accuracy of the Gospels and the Book of Acts. When you have books that have such a plethora of historical corroboration and have been proven to be a historically accurate account on the things we can verify, then we can safely conclude that events not mentioned outside the biblical texts, we can reasonably conclude that they indeed happened because the Gospels have been proven to be a historically accurate account and a trustworthy account. In court, when you have a witness on the stand and his facts continue to be very accurate, and when he's cross-examined and the things which we can verify, he shows tremendous accuracy, well, then that is a witness who has credibility, and you can reasonably trust the account he is giving. And that's what we have indeed in the New Testament and in the Gospels. We have books that have been shown that in the things that we can verify, they are very accurate and trustworthy testimony. Therefore, on this issue, we have good reason to trust the account given in Matthew chapter 2. Well, here are just a few of the most popular and challenging criticisms on the Gospels presented by some 
well-educated modern scholars. When you hear the arguments of the critics, there's no need to be alarmed. The Bible has been attacked for hundreds of years and has withstood the attacks from the critics. Each time the critics have been proven wrong and the Bible continues to stand its ground as the only inspired and inerrant Word of God. Isaiah 40 verse 8 states, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Critics and their arguments will continue to come and go, but the Word of God will continue to stand. I hope you enjoyed this series, and if you'd like to listen to any of these again, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. I look forward to being with you again here on Evidence and Answers. That's all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Praise